0: Amen, and please be seated. If you have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. This morning, we will be beginning a new series today, and Lord willing, in the weeks following, we will be exploring the books of 1 and 2 Peter and of Jude. And as a whole, these three books provide an excellent source to living faithfully during difficult times. To, the, to that point, we've titled this series, Hope, Hope for Living Faithfully During Trying Times. And I can think of no greater message that the church needs to hear today, for for many of us, we are in need of hope. And for all of us, we see that we are living in trying times. The reality of it is, as Christians, we will by nature be at odds with the world. And this can take various forms. Physical violence, rejection from the workplace, being pushed out of the academic square, ridicule, and mockery for simply holding to a Christian worldview, and then ultimately death itself. While these forms of persecution are different in their degree, what each one of them have in common is that the world hates God and the things of God. And if you are in Christ, you belong to Him. Hence the conclusion, you are hated by the world. And that's exactly what was happening in the church sometime around 60 to 68 A.D., Around the time that Peter writes this letter, Peter was most likely in Rome as he did so. And he's writing to fellow believers to encourage them to stand firm in their faith and to look forward to the eternal reward that waits for them. Through this, he is offering them hope during a time of exile which will serve as a great blessing to you and to me today. This morning, we will consider the greeting of Peter as he introduces himself. And even in these opening words, he begins to offer hope during trying times. Would you please follow along with me as I read for us this morning the word of our living God from 1 Peter chapter 1. I will be reading the first two verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ... And for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And may indeed this very day that same grace and peace be multiplied to you fully. Let us go to him once again in prayer and ask that he do this very thing. O Lord our God, would you extend your grace and peace to us this morning? Help us to see that that very grace and peace is nothing short of the gospel itself. And so I ask that you open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to the truth of the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ, not just for our salvation, but also to cause us to live holy lives each and every day. May we rest in you, especially during trying times and periods of difficulties and hardships. Father, I pray that you would bless the reading and the hearing of your word this day, and I ask all of this. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. This epistle was authored by Peter himself. Titles himself, Peter, Apostle of Jesus Christ. This is one of the few letters, there's not a lot of academic debate on that. Of course, there will always be some. Liberal scholarship There is always trying to discredit uh, the authors of the Bible. If you can discredit the authors, you can often discredit the book, which you can discredit the Bible itself. But pretty much the introductory words, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, stand as evidence of who wrote it. Later, um, he validates himself again in First Peter 5. Um, he says, I am a witness to the sufferings of Christ, which limits it down to only a handful of people. That, combined with him giving his own name, lead us to believe that it was, in fact, Peter As we stated earlier, he was also most likely in Rome during the time of this writing. Babylon is the phrase mentioned um, by Peter to explain where he is. And this is a common word. Babylon is is often used um, in the New Testament to speak of Rome. And so we believe that this is where he spent the remainder of his life and where he wrote toward the end of his life these letters. We have historians such as Tertullian and Eusebius, both in the third and early fourth centuries validating this, that Peter lived his final years inside of Rome and served there. We date um, this book around that time, between 60 and 68 AD. I'm inclined for a 62 to 63 AD dating, um, simply due to the fact that Paul was also in Rome around uh, 64, and he does not mention Peter. And so we are working before the Great Dispersion in 70, um, but near that time. And also, it would be under Nero. And so you can imagine the degree of conflict that is going on in the church during this time. And all of this is important. I I don't give you these introductory matters as just trivial um, names, facts, and dates uh, that I think you should hear me say. I give them to you for this reason. One, knowing that Peter wrote it and where he wrote it, it should give us hope. Peter. Peter is a great figure in the Bible. He demonstrates great acts of faith and makes great declarations of Jesus. He's the one to get out of the boat. He declares Jesus the Christ when asked, Who am I? Who do you say that I am? The Catholic Church has made him the chief apostle and the first pope. When Jesus declared, on this rock, I will build my church. Many reasons to look up to this great figure. And yet at the same time, he was a man of great failure. Peter is very human in that regard. He denies Christ three times on the night in which he was betrayed. He's quick to take to the sword in defense of Jesus, not fully understanding the missionary work that he set out to do. We heard last Sunday in the book of in the, the Book of Galatians, excuse me, that he lapses into moments of Judaism even post-resurrection Jesus and needs to be corrected to his face by Paul, the youngest of the apostles. In time served, at least. Peter knows well what it means to struggle. He fully understands what it means to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. And he knows what it means to keep going in light of great failure. It's for these reasons and more, he is an excellent representative to speak the Word of God on the topics of hope and endurance during the times of difficulty. And secondly, it's important to note that if Peter was indeed in Rome, he would have lived in one of the darkest seasons of Christianity. This particular season brought great theological confusion, great external persecution, and in fact, we know, as we just read in our text, many are being dispersed, displaced, scattered from their homes, sent away, cast out, losing everything, their identity, their possessions, their places of worship. It's in this backdrop that Peter writes to us, and as he wrote to the church, have Hope, dear Christians. This morning, even in these few words of introduction, I want us to see four promises of hope. Four promises of hope made by God through this introduction. First, I want us to see that true hope comes from Jesus Christ. There is no other source, and this will be a major theme of this letter. Secondly, Christians will face persecution. And this is good news to you, and we'll talk about why. Thirdly, God's plan for the church is a Trinitarian work. The divine counsel of God agreeing and laying out the plan for our life and for the life of believers throughout the centuries is a Trinitarian work. They are in agreement. And then fourthly, grace and peace Will be your strength during these times of trials. The trials are promised, but so is the strength to endure them. This is what we will hear from God's Word this morning. And so let us begin by considering the fact that true hope comes from Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. As is common in New Testament letters, Peter begins by identifying himself as author. And while we immediately recognize who he is, this would have had an impact on those who read it. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And one of the immediate reactions they would have had as they heard this, it would have been, it would have validated them, it would have validated the letter. It would have given credibility to what they were about to hear. This was not just from anyone. This was from Peter. You want someone that has intimate knowledge of the material that they seek to teach you. And I want to be careful by saying that. I do affirm that Peter had intimate knowledge of this. But God is a credible source by himself. He did not need Peter. He did not need To use someone that actually had experienced these things, God could have spoken through anyone. In fact, often, God has spoken through many things in the Bible. Burning bushes. Talking donkeys. And the list goes on and on. To Jesus Christ being said to be a rock in the Old Testament. If God can speak through, shall I say, dumb animals, and the inanimate objects of this world, He could certainly do without Peter. But... It's in his grace and in his mercy he uses Peter to speak to these fellow believers. We do not lose the personality or the style of the author, even while we affirm completely the accuracy and the authority of it as the word of God. In theological terms, what we are affirming here is what's known as verbal plenary inspiration. That is, God spoke through The writers. And as they wrote, they wrote accurately, filled by the Holy Spirit, so that they kept their own style, their own personality, and even at times their own language. And yet what they say is 100% completely God's word, so it can be trusted. And Peter recognizes this. He doesn't speak on his own authority. He does not say, Peter, I write to you. No, Peter sees his need to say, I am Peter, an apostle of Jesus. This term, apostle, you can directly translate it as one sent, an emissary, on behalf of. So in essence, Peter is saying, I am sent by Jesus Christ to deliver this letter to you, to this collection of believers. And they were believers. They were Christian in their nature. We know this because Peter called them elect exiles. These are people who knew and trusted and rested in the word of God. They would have remained faithful during this period of dispersion. This also lets us know that it was probably mostly a Jewish audience. For there aren't many groups in the Bible that are said to be dispersed more than the Jews. But there would be Gentiles included. And it's with that we we see that... The purpose is to offer hope. And this is our audience. And Peter, in offering hope, connects it to Jesus. The very beginning. He doesn't get more than a few words in before tying everything together to Jesus Christ. He is sent on behalf of Christ, from Christ, to the church. Which means he is saying, I represent the gospel. It's not as if everything has gone wrong and now there needs to be a plan B. He's not saying the gospel was fine for your salvation, but now you're in a real mess. We've got to figure something out. No, what Peter is saying is the gospel is sufficient for your salvation and the gospel is sufficient for your circumstance. The gospel is sufficient now. The gospel will meet you where you are. The fact that Christ came, the fact that he lived, the fact that he died, the fact that he rose again and offered himself as a sacrifice for you is enough today. It's so much enough that I only tag my name onto it because they really make me in the New Testament. You get that feeling from him. It's like Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, it's like he's de-emphasizing himself, like emphasizing his God, because he knows they don't need him, they need Jesus. We'll get to, the, in the moment, um, really the, the, the depths of that, but we see in verse 2, he, he kind of doubles down on this when he starts listing his reasons for writing. And, and two of the reasons, he says, for obedience to Jesus and for sprinkling with his blood. Again, lifting up Christ. You are in this season of trial. You are in this difficulty. You are in this hardship that you may obey Christ and be sprinkled by his blood. Pointing us again to the gospel. And so the gospel is at front and center to this entire letter. It's important. And what a way to start a letter! These are not people that are having an easy time. This is not a a happy church that everything is going well. Life is hard. They need real and immediate answers. They need truth that they can put into practice, not necessarily think about, but actually do right now. And so Peter gets to it and says, you need the gospel. And as he does that, he affirms that indeed you will face persecution, dear Christians. And he reminds them of that as well. So let's look at that as our second point. And if we look at the regions here mentioned in Peter's greeting, um, this would make up what we know as Asia Minor. This would be a collection. I I do believe that it um, would be predominantly Jewish, but it would also include Gentiles as the church became intermingled in the New Testament. As The gospel went forth to the Gentiles, and they came in number to the faith. But Jews as well came to the faith, not divided anymore, but united in Christ. And to that group, Peter does not write surprised, like, how, how did you end up here? Like, really, we, we, we put you in a pretty good position, and then you've messed it up already? That's not the message that he writes to them. No, what he writes to them is, this is according to God's foreordained plan that you would be persecuted and exiled. And that may make us uncomfortable today. It may be hard to admit to us as the modern church that one of the marks of Christendom throughout the ages has been persecution. We especially, as Americans, want to be comfortable We want to live easy lives, worship in great buildings, and do mighty things for the kingdom of God from a sense of financial excess. Now, none of those things are wrong in and of themselves, but they can become crutches. We can use them to shield ourselves from hardships and persecution and doing difficult things for the sake of the kingdom. But the Bible does promise, you will be persecuted. Jesus himself, Matthew 16, or excuse me, Matthew 10, verse 16 and following. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, they will deliver you to courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious. <coughs> Pardon me. How you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. It is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother to death, father his child. Children will rise against parents and put them to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Thanks, Jesus. What a promise. He goes on to say, but you who endure to the end will be saved. Persecution is guaranteed. It's promised. Elsewhere in Scripture, Jesus would say, well, of course they will hate you. They hated me first. They striked the shepherd. How much more so will they go after the sheep? We will find as we continue in this letter, Peter does not give the believers guidelines on how to escape persecution. He does not tell them how to flee it. He does not tell them how to avoid it. No, Peter in this letter and and 2 Peter as well as the book of Jude will tell you how to endure it. How to live in that season. To live in light of persecution. And I would go so far as to say you should be comforted by that fact. You should be comforted when you face trials, persecution, exile, and hardship. Because when it does happen to you, and it will, you can see it as a fulfillment of God's divine promise. When you face trials for your faith, that is another time where you can check a box and say, there's God proving his own word. There's God keeping a promise. There's God, what he said, coming true, which should give you more hope in him. He has been working all things out for his glory and for your good, and has been doing so from the beginning. And it will be done to completion. Peter shows us that in our next point um, as we begin to look at verse 2. All of God's plan is sovereign as Trinitarian in its work. So let's think about that for a moment as we, as we look at this and really weigh what we're saying here. We need the gospel because we will face persecution and it is all part of God's plan. And that is necessary. That is so necessary if you want hope, if you want assurance, if you want the strength to face hard times, you have to come to the conclusion God is sovereign and in control. If you neglect that point, you cannot have hope. You cannot have hope in a God who is not in control. For me personally, this is one of the cheapest reasons I came to see Reformed theology as the clearest understanding of the biblical message. I take great comfort in the understanding that God is sovereign even when I don't understand his plan, even when I don't like his plan, and even when I don't know his plan. I would rather affirm the sovereignty of God and admit those than the alternative, which is, God is not completely sovereign I can interject myself into the plan of God and at times alter it and let's hope it all works out for the best. Where can you have hope in that? Because I'll tell you what, I know myself. I know what I'm like and what I'm capable of and the ways in which I will fail and I will falter and I will serve myself. I'd much rather trust in an unmovable and changing God. We see here in verse 2, the very core of this principle is that God is sovereign and has been. And Peter does a beautiful job here, and, and he, he explains it in Trinitarian language, addressing each specific member of the Godhead. So let's look and see how we have hope because of this work of God. And remember, he's writing to those in exile. You are in exile. You are dispersed for three reasons. One. One. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Your exile is because of or according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, there is a great discussion, one greater than we can have this morning, on that term, foreknowledge. Some propose it to mean God simply looked ahead and saw what would happen. It was much like God watching a movie of future events. It does not designate an acting on God's behalf, rather a knowing. And, I mean, the word itself, there's there's some some rationale for that. Foreknowing, knowing before. I do not believe, though, this is the best way to interpret this. God does not know before because he simply looked ahead. God knows before because he orchestrated the future. And I would challenge anyone that holds to a different rationale... By saying, if God couldn't act upon that which he saw beforehand, there must be a force greater than God. And that would not offer hope. It also does not align with the biblical account. Hope can only be real if God is in control. If he's not in control, there is little to hope in. But because he is, the foreknowledge of the Father acts as strength. Because God has seen it because he laid it out, and it will come to pass. Therefore, you can have hope. Secondly, you've been exiled, O church, in the sanctification of the Spirit. One of the major themes we will unpack in this book, especially as we get to the latter part of chapter 1, is the topic of holiness. Holiness is to be Godly, if you will, and be careful with, with how you interpret that, but it's to demonstrate the characteristics of God, to be other, not like this world, but like God. You could say it like this It's the process by which we become more and more godly in our lives as we live more and more into Him and less and less into the world. The theological term for this process is sanctification. And it's the Holy Spirit. Who will guide us and serve as the catalyst in that sanctifying process? Imagine being the original audience here. And they're told, as they've been dispersed, as they're facing persecution, as theological confusion is ravaging the church, all of this is so that you will become more holy. You're welcome. You might find yourself, and many of you today may find yourself saying, God, is that really that necessary? Couldn't you do it another way? And yet, speak to an older Christian today. I challenge you to do so. And ask them, when were the most sanctifying times in your life? And I dare say they will tell you some of the most sanctifying times in my life were the darkest seasons that I've faced. Because it was in those moments, in those times, when I had to say I have no control I cannot solve this problem, get out of this situation, undo this mess, and they cry out to God, God, you have to help me because I cannot help myself, that God goes, exactly, I know. That's what you need. You need me. And through the Holy Spirit, we will see it done. One commentator, I I love this um, description on the work of the Holy Spirit. One commentator says this, it is the Holy Spirit who stirs the heart a reaching to God. He quickens one's understanding of the gospel. He convicts you of your sin. He reassures you of pardon. And He transforms your character by His fruit of virtues. The Holy Spirit awakens us to God and transforms our lives to look like His. And it is only through the power of the Holy Spirit that you and I can endure difficult times, and we're told in the book of Acts, we're promised by Jesus himself as he got ready to leave to ascend into heaven, I will be with you for my helper is coming. You, dear Christian, today if you're resting in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit, God with you, therefore you have hope. Hope. But it is not in there. God the Father God the Holy Spirit, he concludes the reason you are in trials, the reason you have been dispersed is for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. God's foreknowledge and the work of the Holy Spirit pointing you to an end. There is a goal in mind. The goal is obedience to Jesus. And that obedience is through the sprinkling of the blood of Christ upon your life ultimate source of hope is jesus himself because jesus did die and he did rise again historical facts and this is what peter writes to the dispersed christians christians for many of them would have been alive they would have heard of and maybe even have seen the death of christ that would have heard, and maybe they were of amongst those who saw him in his resurrected state. He says to those facing this time of trial and time of hardship, remember Jesus. And along those lines, tied into that would be remember what he said. Behold, I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go, I am coming again. Not only remember what he did, but remember what he promised. And so wrapped up in all of this is a looking at Jesus. It's a looking back and it's a looking forward. It's a a thinking about and reflecting upon Jesus. But it's not just to sit down and stare at the clouds and think about Jesus all day and life is good. It's not to live a carefree life. It's not to have all of your problems answered or face no seasons of trials or difficulties for the rest of your life. He says, and and he's very wise in his choice of words here, it's unto obedience, so that you may obey during your trials, during your exile, during your difficulty, that you may obey. We cannot live as if we're free to do whatever we want. We have to see we've been given a purpose. We've been given a goal. The trials and hardships carry us to that end. They work in our lives and teach us the importance and the necessity of obeying God. Because in those seasons, we will reach out and we will cling to God for the source of our hope and strength. Consider Peter. Again, the author. Stormy night. They see Jesus walking on the water. Jesus, not afraid, it does not bother him. Peter, oh Lord, call out to me that I might go. Jesus says, come on. And there he goes. You can almost play it out in your head. Excited Peter, he takes off. He, he's walking, he's walking, he's marching to his Savior. And then all of a sudden, he takes his eyes off of Jesus and places them on the world. And what does he see? I'm in an ocean or a lake. These waves are high. The storm is raging. I don't even know if he could swim. He takes his eyes off of his Savior and onto the world, and what does he do? He begins to sink. But I want you to make sure you don't miss a very important part of that story. Jesus reaches out his hand and grabs him. That's how close he got. That close. Now, let me ask you something. You're Peter. The next time, the next town, the next obligation, how are you going to respond Don't you think that trial and his reminder that you have to cling to me or you're going to drown affected his next mission, his next task? Jesus tells him to go witness to these 50 people and he goes with joy because, well, God's going to save me or I'm not going to be saved. That trial would have affected his ministry. That trial would have affected his life. And we know that because again and again, poor Peter, he is often ridiculed because of he's the, well he's the bold one he always speaks his mind but then we look at the new testament peter and paul evangelizing the known world for the gospel the two of them in the great missionary journeys and their their outreach changes the world when we consider what god has done it changes our desire and ability to obey it is the grace and peace of god That gives us strength through our trials. And this is the last point I want us to see from verse 2. Peter concludes this greeting with an offering of grace and peace. And it would be easy to brush this off. And In fact, all of this matches the formula, the Greek formula for greetings. All of this you find in most letters. You can go to Paul, introduces himself, he says something about the people that he's addressing it to, and then he offers them a blessing. And so it would be so easy to look at all this and go, Peter's just checking the boxes so we can get to the meat of the message. But this is the message. Peter knows he doesn't have time to waste. He knows that he cannot miss a moment to impart truth and hope unto people that need it desperately. I love um, theologian Edmund Clowney. He, He says this phrase, grace and peace be multiplied to you. It is a declaration, not a hope. He's not saying... I sure hope God gives you grace and peace today. He is saying, no, God is filling you with grace and peace. God is filling you with grace and peace. It is not a wish, but a proclamation. If you are in Christ, then you have grace and peace. In your trials, in your exile, in your hardships, Our hope comes from God's grace and peace being poured out upon us. It rightly orients our minds. It serves as the thesis of Peter's letter. May God's grace and God's peace be multiplied to you. That's what we'll explore in the chapters that follow. It's a center and focus on God and not ourselves. Not on our circumstances, but on the unchangeable and nature of God. As the old hymn goes. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace. Oh dear Christian. I don't know where you are this morning. But I do know many of you are in seasons of trials and tribulations. I can say that with certainty because the Bible has promised it. We're either in a peak or a valley today. But I know that all of us know what it feels like to walk in the valley of the shadow of death. And I I, I say this with all the love that I can. If you don't relate to that, please know the valley is coming. You may be in a peak for a season, but the valleys will come. We are promised trials and difficulties in this life. We are promised exile, for we are foreigners. This is not our home. We're simply resting here on our path to eternity with God. And when those seasons come, and they will, I plea with you, as the Apostle Peter does, consider Christ. Accept that persecution verifies that God has a plan for your life. Trust in our triune God who foreknew you, works in you through the power of the Holy Spirit, by the blood of Christ, unto obedience. And receive the grace and peace that can only come from knowing God as your Lord and Savior. And watch over one another. For this message was not to individuals per se, but to the church. For that is not only all of our task individually, but it's our task collectively. None of us are called to walk through these valleys alone. You need one another. I need each and every one of you. This is how we will have hope during periods of trial and of exile. And it is the only source of strength we will have for the days ahead. Would you please pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, it can often be quite difficult to remind us of Seasons of trials. Many are in those valleys as we speak. They come heavy burdened. They come filling the full weight of the shadow of death. But even as the psalmist reminds us of that truth, he goes on to say, But you are with me. Your grace is sufficient. My cup overflows. You anoint my head with oil. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Father, I pray for each and every one here and those joining us online. I pray that their hope is in the gospel, that they know you personally and truly, and they know what it means to live as worthy of the kingdom of God. For it is only in that way that we can have hope to face that which is ahead. And I praise you, Lord, and we celebrate you that you do offer that hope. You don't leave us to wander on our own, but it is through your strength that you call us through these seasons that you will be glorified and we will be made more and more into your image. Give us the strength needed, O Lord, and help us to walk alongside one another through these seasons. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.